Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from Macomb, Illinois, a cold, snowy Macomb, Illinois. And we have got a great show for you today, folks. We are going to be talking about birds, nesting boxes, all kinds of things like that. We have uh, Dr. Michael Ward with us here today. But before we get to our special guests, we must introduce our co-hosts with us every single week. We are joined by local foods educator Katie Parker in Adams County. Hey, Katie. Hey, Chris. How's it going? Not too bad. I finally got the winter weather I've been wanting to get. and But I, it sounds like you might have gotten even more than I did in your neck of the woods. Yeah. When you said you haven't gotten any snow last week, it's like, you're crazy. We've gotten tons of snow. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I'm glad you finally got to scoop some snow. I finally feel like I can uh, retire uh, the winter 2020-2021, I think. It's, right. It can be go in the books now. So It came with freezing temps and snow, so it's truly winter. Yeah, I, I just love these nice little Midwestern just plunges into sub-zero weather. <laughs> and I know we do have one co-host who I think is just just itching to just go outside shirtless and roll around in the snow. Ken Johnson, horticulture educator in Jacksonville. Hey, Ken. Hello. I did take the garbage out in shorts and a t-shirt. I did, I did have a t-shirt on though, so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the neighbors are still talking about you, so. It's... I, I did put shoes on because there was snow on the ground. But... <laughs> ah, yes. Uh, Ken is our resident hobbit slash Viking, so. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, well, to this week, guys, we are going to be talking um, with Dr. Michael Ward about birds. And so, I don't, you, do you, either of you uh, set up bird feeding, anything like that? Is that a hobby for either of you? Yeah, we've got a bird feeder set up. We do the uh, sunflower seeds, and it's right outside our, our kitchen window. So, the kids will get their stools out and get their binoculars out and stare at the birds. And We've got a, a suet cake up there too. We have some woodpeckers come and visit every once in a while. Yeah, the house we moved into, um, the lady before us had a purple martin house. Uh, so we've been maintaining that. And then um, we just put a new birdhouse out and then we also feed as well. Uh, so they're fun to watch. I have been enjoying, so I, I'm every year I feel like I, I, I want to learn a new bird species. And so I've been watching uh, the flickers um coming out and at, at first I'm like well these look like woodpeckers what are they doing jamming their beaks into the ground and so just, just some, some readings like oh they're ground insect feeding type birds I thought that was pretty interesting so I, I I'd say I, I'm super excited for our guest today so I can't wait any longer so I we must introduce uh Michael Ward um with uh I, I guess you have a couple uh, titles behind your, uh, is it an assistant professor or associate professor? I'm an associate professor in uh, natural resources and environmental sciences here in the College of ACES. Um, and then I have a unique position where I'm also a senior ornithologist at the Illinois Natural History Survey, which is a uh, part of the Prairie Research Institute here on campus. Um, and so I kind of do double things, but essentially I do the same thing in both. Uh, I study birds, conservation, yeah. ecology, that kind of stuff. Oh, that's awesome. I I don't know, Ken, Katie, I, I don't know about you guys, but I have utilized uh, the Illinois Natural History Survey on so many different uh, aspects, uh, not only for ornithology, mycology, um, lots of other wildlife um, aspects that go into it. Uh, you know, we are working with another group uh, looking at, at bats, which is kind of an interesting time with the pandemic and COVID 
yeah. to be working with bats, which I guess, Michael, they're not really doing that right now. No, um, but it's hard to come around. So uh, the survey still has research going on. Um, we have research right now in Texas on bats. Mm -hmm. um, we're not supposed to be handling bats because of the potential that bats were a vector for COVID to transmit to humans, but we, could, we can't handle them, but we can still um, go out there and monitor them different ways and kind of figure out what's going on. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, you're right. The survey is a great asset for the people here in Illinois. Um, you know, it's, uh, I always like going over there and talking to people to do all, you know, most of the researchers over there are their whole lives or whatever they study, whether it's fish or snakes or fungus or whatever. And so, uh, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great resource to take advantage of. So, Michael, how did how did you get involved with the Natural History Survey? Was it like a job application, like you're in, or was it sort of, uh, did you start working, researching yep. with them and kind of made your way in there? Uh, yeah, so it's a kind of a long story. Um, so I actually grew up in Jacksonville. Um, so my parents are still over there, my sister, and there was a Audubon Society talk when I was in high school. And I, my, dad, my dad still lives over in Jacksonville area, and he was a nurseryman but now he also led bird tours on the side. So he'd go to Central America leading a bird tour. So I was interested in birds. And this professor from the U of I came over and gave an Audubon talk in Jacksonville and said he needed to hire someone to help him find bird nests. And I'm like, wow, that's a better job than uh, I was working at a golf course in Jacksonville. So I did that. So I ended up when I was um, between my junior and senior year in high school, I worked um, for the Natural History Survey in Champaign. Um, interestingly, the uh, I was only 17 at the time and you have to be 18 to drive state vehicles. So I worked in Southern Illinois in the Cheyenne National Forest and the students, grad students I worked with were much older. So they would come back from going out a long day of finding birds, finding nests and go to the local bars, forget about me. So I have to walk back. I couldn't drive a vehicle. I couldn't go to the <laughs> bars. Uh, but years later, um, I was the boss of several of them. So I got my payback eventually. Um, you abandoned so them in that. the middle of nowhere then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And then I end up uh, going, getting my undergrad in Missouri, and then got my master's, PhD, postdoc, all at the University of Illinois, and they kept on hiring me. And so um, it's unusual. I'm the only person that's tenured track that's also at the survey. But you know, I, um, you know, what I do in the College of Aces and in Inres, and and what I do at the survey are very related. So it made a lot of sense. And so I can ha act like a bridge between the teaching part of it, the academia part, and then. Um, some of the applied research, we work with the Department of Natural Resources very closely. Um, you know, the, um, I was just over in Adams County. We got a project over there. We put up a tower to track migratory birds. It's a collaboration between Missouri and Illinois Department of Natural Resources. And so I get around the state quite a bit and try to um, do research that both advances science, but at the same time informs conservation. And so mm -hmm. it's, uh, in my opinion, it's a, it's a great, uh, great job to have. An amazing resource too for citizens of Illinois. Yeah, I mean, uh, you probably don't want this to happen, but I, I give out your name quite a bit in email. <laughs> yeah. no, that's fun. So I get random pictures of birds quite often from people's bird feeders, and so mm -hmm. especially if I'm doing administrative work or grading, you know, people's exams, it's fun to see pictures from different areas. And yeah, I'm happy to help whatever way I can. I have to have my kids start sending you pictures because they keep asking me stuff. I'm like, I don't know, it's a bird. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to help. <laughs> I can do Cardinals and Robins and then after that, a, we get in trouble. <laughs> get them a cell phone just so they can send, <laughs> send them some pictures. It could be their long contact in there. <laughs> but you know, with the, with the pandemic, so many people are now feeding more birds and going out to nature more. So 
So I've definitely seen an uptick in people, I don't want to call it bugging me, but, you know, sending me random emails or finding me on, you know, this, you know, social media and asking me, what's this, what's that? And, and sometimes they actually have pretty, pretty rare birds in their backyard. I mean, sometimes it's a, a blue jay or a red blackbird or something pretty common, but other times, it, you know, it's something that's fairly unusual for the area. And so um, it's just, you know, for me, I like to see people watching birds. So it sounds like you're all fledgling ornithologists with your bird feeders. So that's, that's good yeah. to hear. That's like Chris mentioned, I'm, I'm kind of an insect person. So we've been hearing a lot about insect apocalypse and all that fun stuff. And we're starting to see more and more about um, lots of bird die-offs. So stuff like 170 million forest birds are gone, 720 million grassland birds, 2.5 billion migratory birds. So what exactly is the uh, <clears throat> status of the bird population in North America? Yeah, it's not good, right? So the, um, you know, birds are the, the best monitored taxa in the world because we can use citizen science to do that. Um, and because we have such amazing data, we can plot over the last 50 years how things have changed. And so we know grassland birds have shown big declines, migratory birds have shown big declines. Um, you know, we don't always, always know why. Um, and, you know, it's easy to get very negative very quick if you look at the numbers, right? So there are enormous numbers are declining. And again, it's not rocket science to some degree, it's habitat, right? So we've lost a lot of habitat. But on the flip side of that, you know, in Illinois, we are making some progress in certain areas. Um, you know, over in Western Illinois along the Illinois River. So when I grew up um, in high school over there along the river, it was all ag, you know, they were just trying to farm it, it would flood, it didn't really work out very well for anybody involved. And so now most of it's owned by Department of Natural Resources, Nature Conservancy, U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And so we've seen a big increase in like pelicans and herons and ducks in certain areas. And so we know now that there's certain taxa that are really doing poorly. Um, some of the migratory birds are hit in multiple different areas, right? So, so say in your backyards, you have, um, say, a common yellowthroat, which is a small little warbler. Well, that bird's not then going down to maybe Mexico to spend the winter. Um, right now, we have research in Mexico on some birds in the winter, and we do some work in uh, parts of Cuba and other parts of Central America where it's not only enough for us to study, you know, how these birds are doing in Illinois. If we really want to get conservation, we have to study them um, on their wintering grounds as well. And so it's not only trying to create you know, have people kind of do the right thing in their back, you know, their backyard to create habitat. It's also working with people in uh, jungle areas or deciduous forests in Mexico, not to destroy them to do more sustainable agriculture, those kind of things. And so it's a, a very complex issue. Um, on the insect side, we have some interesting, though somewhat depressing research going on with whippoorwills. So wherever you're at in whippoorwills, when you're, if you're my age and growing up, you would hear whippoorwills. Um, so, um, you know, where, where Ken's at over there, my dad still lives on the country outside Jacksonville. And when I was little, we'd hear whippoorwills and they're gone. And so we've been doing research on, and there's still some in Illinois, and it turns out they're only where there's moths. And so people in Illinois, as you drive around at night in the summer, in some areas you get your windshield full of dead moths. In other areas, you don't get any, right? And so if you, I mean, that's not too scientific, right? But we have a more scientific way of collecting the moths. But if you correlate that to where, our insectivorous birds are, that's where they're at, right? So there's, we still have some decent areas up by Havana, there's some good areas by Kinkakee down the Cheyenne National Forest, there's some good areas. But, you know, I've lived here in Champaign for 20 something years now and they're gone, right? So there's this, there's not the moth population to support them and those birds are gone. And it's just not whippoorwills, it's other types of swallows, other species. 
And so we, not just us, but lots of people are trying to understand why they're declining, right? So is it because some environmental toxin we have out there? Is it the lack of plants to support them? Um, there's a lot of hypotheses. Um, we're working right now on a couple of different ideas um, with the moths that are causing ripples decline. And the hope is we can figure this out and then try to change practices, um, bring these things back. Um, and we'll just have to wait and see how things kind of pan out. And, and then once, you know, as a researcher, once we figure these things out, it comes to, you know, the people listening to this to, to make this, the changes, the small changes, whatever they might be. Um, and I'm a big believer that everybody can do a little bit to help out to try to get a few more insects. Um, if, you know, have something in your backyard that helps that bird as it's migrating from Canada to Colombia, South America, it stops in your backyard for a day. Well, you know, having, you know, some service berry and some insects in your backyard might be what keeps it alive and, and keeps the population going. Speaking of whippoorwills, is it a requirement as an ornithologist to be able to make the accurate sounds of birds? Uh, no, but uh, <laughs> well, some of them are pretty good. Uh, these yeah. days, in the can old days, it? we would try, but these days, the iPhone, you can just, everything's on your iPhone, you can just play whatever you want, and so it becomes real easy. But the old timers, you can you can tell when you're working with the old timer because they'll start whistling this or that. Right. Uh, uh, I'm not very good at it. I don't even try because I got the iPhone. It's much much better <laughs> tool. I feel like whippoorwills and bobwhites are the most fun to uh, mimic. They are, and you know it's good because a lot of the general public know those two birds, and right. it, actually those are two birds that are showing very big declines. Really. Um, so it, it's a way to get people. Um, maybe interested in what they can do on their property to try to help um, conserve those species. Yeah. So in a previous webinar, you mentioned that scientists are finding Midwestern migratory birds in the stomachs of sharks in yeah. the Gulf of Mexico. What's going on with this? Yeah. So um, that was a study that we did um, a few years ago, and we're still kind of publishing some stuff from that. And again, it's kind of a long story, but here at the University of Illinois, we have a great engineering program, and they had developed some technology back in the 60s that we could track birds. And so these days, everybody's tracked by their iPhone or um, other devices. But for birds, um, if we're tracking hummingbirds or small little warblers, we can't strap you know, something heavy on them because they got to fly. And so we started a study understanding um, how birds cross the Gulf of Mexico and whether they survive. So we did research down by Mobile, Alabama. We catch birds, including hummingbirds and other like thrushes and warblers and vireos. And then we put transmitters on them. And then we create a, a line of antennas across the Yucatan Peninsula. So people that have been to Cancun, it kind of stretched from Cancun throughout the Yucatan Peninsula. And then we'd be able to determine if when they left Mobile as they crossed Gulf of Mexico, did they make it to the Yucatan? And then if they did, how fast and what condition were they in when they got there? And we found out that um, one of the things that spurred this on was people were doing research on sharks underneath oil rigs out in the Gulf of Mexico. And we already knew from anecdotal, you know, just kind of um, some weird back channel ways that when there was big storms, all these birds flying across the Gulf of Mexico have nowhere to land except for oil rigs, so they might land there. Well, the people doing the shark research found that their bellies were full of, you know, tanagers and cuckoos and indigo buntings, birds that aren't water birds, right? So the only way they get able to get these birds is these birds are dying as they're flying and just running out of energy and falling out of the sky into the ocean. And then the sharks have easy meals by just swimming around and scavenging whatever's dead. And so our research um, 
we found out a lot of things. So one thing is it's about a thousand kilometers across the Gulf of Mexico, and these birds can make it in about 20 hours. They know what the weather is. They know when hurricanes are coming. They make good decisions about that. But the number one thing that drives whether they make it or whether they even try to make it is fat. So fat is the energy they use to, to move. And um, if they don't have the fat, we've actually developed the Gulf Coast so much with condos and developments that they can't find the fat there. So they have to go back north. And so one thing people in Illinois can do is have yards where you have native shrubs and plants and insects. So those birds can stay fat because they can't go across the Gulf of Mexico if they're not, we have a way of ranking birds from zero to five. So zero is their emaciated, skinny. You can literally reach, I mean, they have no fat on them and fives are butterballs, right? So there's fat hanging off of them all over the place. So you might think butterballs are bad, but actually butterballs are good. So you gotta be a four or five to cross the Gulf of Mexico. Um, if you're a three, you usually don't make it. And if you're below a three, you don't even try because you know that you have no shot. And so they actually, what we call reverse migrate. So instead of going to, they go back north because they can't even find any habitat along the Gulf Coast and they go somewhere they can find habitat. Um, and again, for migratory birds, you know, your backyard um, is your habitat. So I, I live in St. Joseph, just outside Urbana. And, you know, I got a couple of big oak trees in my yard and, you know, I can have, you know, 50 warblers out there during migration eating the insects. Um, and so that was, a, it was interesting because it, it also helped us with the Mexican government determine where to put wind power. Um, we want to put wind power in places that doesn't chop up birds. I mean, re renewable energy is great, but we got to put it in a places that aren't impacting wildlife. And so all in all, it was a, it was a great project. Um, we've kind of brought together the engineering prowess of uh, campus. The, uh, another story associated with that is the Mexican government didn't want us to import antennas for reasons I didn't quite understand. And so the people here on campus figured out how we could buy um, pieces of equipment from the Home Depot in Cancun, take them out to remote areas, literally villages that they still speak Mayan, and they don't even speak Spanish. My Spanish is terrible. I have no Mayan at all. And then we put everything together in those villages to track the birds as they, as they go south. So it was a great study. And um, yeah, we learned a lot. And again, it's kind of depressing in that we need to make these birds fat, but it's also good in the fact that we know how to do it. That's fascinating. All the, all the partnerships involved with that type of work. Holy cow. Yeah, it, it was tricky. Um, and we also worked in Cuba and that added another layer of problems um, <laughs> yeah. by working there as well. Um, but yeah, you know, I had a great, you know, the thing about the University of Illinois is we have a very robust ecology program and we actually have like six or seven ornithologists and we get great students. So I had a student that was from Mexico. Um, we had other collaborators and, you know, this day and age to do something like that, you can't do it by yourself. And so we had great collaborators to get it all done, engineering. Um, you know, it's fun working with engineers. They think differently than we do. And, you know, we're worried, worried about conservation. And so we just say that you, know, you guys keep on making these doodaddies that, you know, whatever they, you know, they're not helping the world. So in this case, you can actually be part of the solution. And mm -hmm. that usually works pretty well to get them motivated to, uh, not, not to disparage engineers, but it, um, they, very get, they get very excited about how they can help um, collect this data that can then inform conservation. Very cool. Well, kind of in that same vein, I'll, I'll use like monarch butterfly as sort of an example. You know, you can tell people in developed areas, urban areas, like, hey, help the monarch butterfly. But a lot of work has to happen also in like agricultural land. And so people with the monarch butterfly, they've been working with ag groups to try to promote mm -hmm. habitat. So 
is the same thing happening in, in like in the world for bird conservation or people oh, yeah. working with ag groups? And do you know, is that a, is there a workable solution there? There is. I mean, um, I'm a big believer. So in Illinois, our main land use is corn and soy, right? And so we're not going to achieve any true conservation, wildlife conservation, if we don't include the farmers and the, and the producers. Uh, we have a program right now that works with farmers to use their subsurface tiles and block them up, actually put in their gates mm -hmm. and flood their fields in March and April to support the migration of a bird called golden plovers. They breed in the tundra and they winter in South America. And we have pretty good evidence that their populations are declining because they can't find the food during migration because everybody tiles their fields. And so we'll pay farmers money. This is through a program with USDA and the Illinois Department of Natural Resources to, to literally block up their, flood their field till April 15th. Then they can pull the plug and let all the water come out and they can still farm it. And so it's a way, it's a win-win, right? So the farmers are making money. They're not losing the ability to create, you know, to plant their soy or corn and make uh, money. It saves, you know, DNR can't be, you know, as we all know, farmland is very expensive. DNR can't be buying that. It's just not, doesn't make any sense for them to buy it. But we can work with farmers to do that. And so we've been pushing this for a while. You know, it's a, you know, it's a hard nut to crack, right? So some years farmers are very concerned about, um, you know, the price of corn and soy and, um, some farmers, just like any, any other group, are very engaged and want to do whatever they can. Others are less engaged. But a lot of times, especially with people with uh, farms that have been their family for years, you bring up the fact that, you know, have you seen Bob White lately or pheasants? And then they'll think around like, well, you know, I remember Bob White when I was young, but I don't remember him now. And you start, you know, talking about, well, that's because this hedgerow is gone or we need a little more grass out there. You used to have cattle in a pasture and now it's all corn and soy. And so there's lots of programs that are coming online or have been online to try to work with agricultural producers to do simple things, right? It's not like we're, so, sometimes I think the farmers think that, you know, these, you know, tree huggers are coming in and wanting you to uh, turn your whole farm into uh, a prairie back like, you know, 1700s, but that's not the case at all, right? Just small little things, right? So if we got 20 million acres of corn in Illinois, if 10% of them do something a little different, it'll make a big difference. And so we're working on that. You know, it's, um, yeah, every time I can, I try to do that. Every time I can give talks to farmers, it's great. Um, you know, I, I do like giving talks to like, soil water conservation districts, those kind of things. Um, and because a lot of the farmers, particularly farmers that have been doing it for a long time, realize that there's, there's some issues out there in the environment with insects and with wildlife. And they want to know what they can do to help. And a lot of times they have some idea what they can do to help, but we can also point them in the right direction about, some real concrete things they can do that can make a difference. So like in, in terms of some things uh, like a no-till system or a cover crops, would, is that beneficial for ground nesting or? Yep, so um, no-till is definitely beneficial. So we're seeing in no-till soy that more birds nest out there, even some species you wouldn't think would nest out there. Um, it has more insects. It's, you know, no-till is definitely um, a benefit. I had a grad student working on this and. I think she estimated that the use, you know, by using no-till, we get about you know, three quarters of a million more birds nesting in Illinois or something yeah. like that. It was pretty impressive. Cover crops are also, can be good. I mean, we're, we got some projects right now with the Department of Natural Resources. It kind of comes down to when they want to terminate, right? So they have cover crops and they're going to have to terminate them, um, usually with herbicide to plant, to plant their cash crop. The later they wait to terminate, 
it can be better for birds. Now, if you wait too long, birds will start nesting and then you're destroying the nest. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to find the sweet spot, right? So long enough to give the birds the ability that when they migrate back to Illinois, they can forage and cover crops and put on fat and get ready to lay their eggs and take care of their young. If you wait too long, they might actually start laying their eggs and then you go and destroy their eggs and that's not good either. And so um, I think cover crops are definitely a benefit, especially for migration, um, but there's still a little bit to learn. Um, cereal rye, which is the most common cover crop, does look like a, the best one for birds, which works out good. Birds don't seem to like the turnips and radishes and stuff they put out there, but they really like the cereal rye, which is good. Kind of flipping gears to homeowners. So a lot of people have um, bird feeders up at their houses and stuff, including three of us. Um, so kind of like that, that next level, would that be including stuff like nesting boxes? Is that something that homeowners should be considering doing? Yeah, I mean, um, I guess the big picture for like bird feeders and nest boxes, I mean, bird feeders probably aren't having a huge population level impact, but the benefit is, as we talked about earlier, it's, you know, having your kids be able to look outside and see a cardinal and a blue jay and appreciate those. I mean, people don't appreciate nature if they don't see it. And, you know, that's one of the big things we've seen over the last 20 plus years is people are more disconnected from nature. So having those bird feeders is good. I mean, it probably helps a few individuals here and there, um, but I think the big thing is just for appreciation. Now for nest boxes, there's definitely evidence that like chimney swifts, like, you know, they need chimneys, right? And so uncapped chimneys, um, as Kay was talking about over in her neck of the woods, it's the Purple Martin capital of the world or something in Griggsville, Illinois. And so Purple Martins pretty much only nest in Purple Martin boxes and their Purple Martins are declining pretty rapidly. And so if we're gonna maintain Pearl Martins, we're gonna have to have boxes up there. Um, you know, small, I mean, bluebirds are doing great, right? So we did a long-term study where people had walked across Illinois in 1906, counting all the birds in Illinois. It was repeated in the 50s. And then we did it again about 15 years ago. And uh, what we found was like, bluebirds were in terrible shape. And we stopped putting nasty chemicals, mainly DDT on the, in the landscape. And we put up um, bluebird trails. And that's really resulted in big increases in uh, bluebird populations. And so, you know, putting up bluebird houses or wren houses or uh, pearl martin houses, I think is great. Um, you know, it, it's important to keep them cleaned every year. Um, you're going to have to fight with sparrows. Um, some people hate um, house sparrows, but um, I mean, I kind of gave up the fight a long time ago at my feeder. Um, they're in, introduced, but actually their populations are declining pretty, pretty rapidly in Illinois. Um, you know, any bird you feed is going to be part of the ecosystem and you're feeding, like I feed hawks, right? So I have all these sparrows and the Cooper's hawk flies by and eat some of those birds. And I get emails all the time about it. What can I do to save my birds? And I just try to, you know, we're lucky. And we, you know, in parts of Europe and parts of Asia, there's not raptors left. And so we still have the opportunity in urban areas to have a very diverse birds in our backyard and be part of the ecosystem. And so, you know, it's good to have Cooper's hawks or red tail hawks in your, in your neighborhood. I, I put a wren house up a few years ago and had, it was a beautiful Disney story that occurred there until the morning when their calls changed to something more shrill and dire. And I go out and I look and their nest, which was full of babies, there is a black snake with his head sticking out while mom and dad dive bomb at him. So I messed up, didn't I? I, I should have done something to protect no, that nest. No, box. I mean, it's all right. It's a, it's a circle of life, right? So, I mean, snakes are the <laughs> uh, number one predator of nests that we find, at least in central Illinois. Um, 
and you know snakes aren't doing great either. So um, I do a lot of research on telemetry where we tag birds and watch them fly around and do whatever they do. And it's really interesting. We tag some snakes to watch what they do and snakes are incredibly boring, right? So they'll go and so eat your babies out of a wren house. Mm -hmm. Then they'll sit in a stump for two weeks doing nothing, right? And then they'll move somewhere and eat something else and sit around. And so, um, you know, I, a lot of people are worried about, you know, I have a nest out there, I got eaten by a raccoon or a snake or, and there's a bird called a cowbird that'll lay its eggs in other birds' nests. And a lot of people dislike that. And some states have active programs where they kill the cowbirds. To me, you know, every, every little bit helps, you know, snakes are part of the ecosystem. We want to have habitat out there. It's not that house wrens are declining because people are putting up boxes that snakes are finding. Um, and so um, I just tried to educate, you know, both the public and the students I teach here on campus that, you know, it's all part of the system and it's generally okay. I mean, it's t there's times when humans start doing stuff that can, if everyone's doing the same thing and cause problems, but generally speaking, people's hearts in the right place and they're trying to help birds and usually it works out that makes me feel better we got some bluebird boxes we're going to put up but i'm going to i'm going to do the predator guards this time make sure i don't put them underneath a tree or something where a snake or somebody else can jump on top of it yeah the, we've done a lot of work with bluebirds and yeah snakes are the main the main threat you're going to get there and so putting up one of those little funnel things mm -hmm. um, to keep the snakes out will work out work well okay I, i'm curious too for i guess for my nesting box excursion here do i need to clean out the box between every single cycle or how often should i, I do that I would, I would do it every year um okay. sometime maybe in the next month or so um so there are parasites that can stay in the nest um kind of like those flies you have in western illinois um, mm -hmm. now those can be around and um, there's other types of parasitic flies that can cause problems and so by just cleaning out the nest i mean some people go a little bit over I don't know if it's overboard, but they go to more of an extreme and they'll use bleach or vinegar to clean out their, their box. Um, I mean, it probably doesn't hurt, but I, I never do that. And we don't really see um, any big issue. I mean, if you clean out the box now, there really isn't the structure for those eggs to stay in there that are might be parasitic uh, insects. And so it works out. It works pretty good. I, I would suggest doing it in late February, early March and get rid of everything. And that way when the birds come back, they have a fresh nest box to use. Are there any plants that you would recommend that we incorporate into our backyards to help the birds? Yeah. Um, so we're a big, I'm a big proponent of native plants. I mean, sometimes there's plants that aren't native but aren't gonna be an exotic problem. But in, um, in backyards, I like serviceberry, which is like a shrub, has good fruit that you can eat, has pretty fall color. Birds love it. Um, I like dense um, plantings in some areas that gives areas birds to hide from predators, to roost at night. So right now, as as we all know, it's it's darn cold out there, and so these birds are gonna have to find a spot at night to stay warm. And so they like dense areas. So cedars, um, where depending on where you're at in Illinois, some types of pines. Um, there's like hawthorns, viburnums. Um, one of the good things is a lot of nurseries throughout Illinois now have realized people are interested in native plants. And so if you go to your local nurseryman, a lot of times they can give you good advice on, um, you know, this is a native plant, this area. Um, I'm a big proponent of oaks and hickories. So we have really rock solid data showing that there's more Lepidoptera, which are like caterpillars, 
that are supported on oaks and hickories than say like maples and elms. And so as people are, um, um, you know, planting uh, trees in their yard, or even like when there's bigger um, cities are thinking about what to put along roads, you know, oaks grow a little slower, hickories grow a little slower than say an elms might or ash, but elms and ash are in bad shape because of Dutch elm disease and emerald ash borer. So I'm always, and uh, oaks grow faster than people think, right? I mean, it takes a little while to get going, but they go, they go well. And so planting those hardwoods, oaks, is, oaks and ash. Um, there's some other trees like actually locusts and sycamore and tulips um, do pr promote a lot of insects for birds as well. Um, and so there's a lot of resources online. I think a local nursery can help, but there's definitely plants that are pretty much just for show and don't really uh, uh, provide a lot of resources for birds. Um, so birds in the spring eat insects, but in the fall they eat a lot of berries. And so there's a lot of native plants that have berries. Also like oaks and hickories have, you know, what we call mass, acorns and hickory nuts that like red-headed woodpeckers, which is a bird not doing too well. Turkeys, which, you know, are doing well now, but when I grew up in Western Illinois, there was none, right? They were gone. And so uh, the, um, there's definitely a lot of stuff you can do in your yard to help promote birds. And, you know, it takes a couple of years to get these things going, but you'll see the rewards after these plants get established. So I kind of also leading on to um, citizen science, it, do you utilize citizen science data uh, yep. for your work? I do. So um, these days we use it a lot more than I ever thought we would. So there's a program called eBird. Um, that is run by the Cornell Lab Ornithology and you can upload whatever you see. So today I already uploaded um, the birds at my bird feeder. Mm -hmm. And if you go out bird watching, you can upload that, professionals can upload that. And when it uh, initially came out, there was a meeting here in Illinois and this was, oh, I don't know, 15 years ago. And I remember the guy that, there was a couple guys um, that were promoting it and I remember thinking, that's a good idea, but this will never work. And I was, I was very much wrong. So they're getting millions of checklists a day so um, during the pandemic, um, well, I guess we're in the pandemic still, but during the shelter in place in April and May, they were getting you know, hundreds of thousands of entries an hour throughout um, North America. And so when you get, so the issue with citizen scientists is that not all citizens are created equal. Some, some bird watchers throughout Illinois are better than most of the professional bird watchers and ornithologists at different universities. Others you know, are novices to their learning, but there's ways when you get millions of, of data points, you can use statistical uh, modeling to actually use this and do some great stuff. And so we're using some eBird data and a project right now to think about climate change and how birds change their distributions, which is a, in Illinois is much more complicated than you might think. You know, People like to think, well, it's getting warmer, so birds are morphing north, and it's definitely not that simple. Um, we use it to um, think about what times a year um, we should do management, right? So a lot of people have grassland and they want to mow it mm -hmm. at some point. Well, we know from a lot of data now that you're better off waiting till after July 4th to mow because that way the birds have reproduced. A lot of them are already starting to move around. At least they can fly away from the mower. If you really want to be precise, you can mow between July and say beginning of September because then after that, a lot of the birds north of us start moving back down. Um, eBird's got amazing animation, right? They have computer scientists that you can track the migration of um, hummingbirds because it's not just United States, it's the world, right? And so there's lists coming in from 
Panama today and Costa Rica and all kinds of places that they can then put in these in these systems. And so I'm a real big believer that that's it's it's the future on multiple levels, right? It's the future of getting people to appreciate nature because the only way we're going to achieve environmental conservation is if people care, right? And they care by knowing what's in your yard and doing the right thing and kind of thinking about it. And then with all this data, you know, I can't, we don't have enough money for me to hire enough people to go out and do the surveys that I can get from, um, from eBird. And we have other ones in Illinois. We, we run the spring bird count, which is done in every county. We have a Christmas bird count. We have the breeding bird survey. So we have lots of different systematic monitoring programs. And um, it's why I tell my undergrad, and I, and I have a I have a son in college, he doesn't really listen to me, but I tell him that statistics and data analysis and big data are the future, right? So we have so much data and there's so few people that can, are very good at even like managing and analyzing it, that that's what we really need going forward. Um, but uh, yeah, my son doesn't listen, but I'm, I'm starting to work with big data and it's, you know, it's not that scary. It's not that bad. I feel overwhelmed when I see big spreadsheets. <laughs> so if so, say I, I put up my bird feeders this winter, I've been sheltering in place all year, I'm interested in birds now, if I want to get involved in citizen science, would eBird be like one of the best kind of like beginner citizen science projects for me? Um, yes and no. I mean, eBird's got some great resources. Um, you know, obviously it's free, it's got amazing pictures, amazing, you can listen to birds call and that kind of stuff. But I really think it comes down there's local Audubon societies and local groups wherever you are in Illinois that um, that you can get become active with and start um, just going. I mean, you know, with the with the shelter in place, it was hard to kind of get together out in the. But you know, as a lot of us get um, vaccinated and as we kind of move forward, I think it'll get better. And you know, hopefully, it's better by migration time, which in Illinois is in May. So contacting your local Audubon society um, is a great resource. Um, so wherever you're at. So whether you're in Southern Illinois, there's some down there, there's lots in Chicago. Um, if you're on college campuses, there's bird clubs, um, Nature Conservancy. So if you just start looking around, you can find them. Um, the, uh, or you can email me and I can put you in touch with people as well. Um, when I've been out, so working at home, I go all crazy sitting in my office all day. So I've been out bird watching more than I ever have been. And I've been cornered multiple times the last couple of months by people that see me bird watching and want to know, what I see, how am I seeing it? And I point out to out in this lake and I say, well, there's a common golden eye and a growing teal. And I'm like, well, how do you know that? I'm like, well, that's, that's what I get paid to do. But beyond <laughs> that, I mean, you can learn that by going to your local bird clubs. And so um, depending on where I am, I kind of know those, I'm pointing them in the right direction. And, uh, and they'll be ecstatic to have new members join in there. And it's a, you know, it's a low stress, easy environment. And that, because the way to learn birds is to go out in the field and start learning them, right? So I mean, you can, you can do stuff on, on the internet and get some information, but really just walking in a local park, local natural area um, is the way to start learning the vocalizations, how to identify them, different behaviors. And we're, you know, Illinois is pretty um, altered in terms of habitats, but we're right in the migration pathway. And so the first week in May in central Illinois, you can go out and see hundred species pretty easy. Um, there's amazing spots like Amaquan, which is over by Havana, Illinois, or up in Chicagoland along the lakefront is great. Down in Southern Illinois at Crab Orchard, there's lots of great refuges, natural areas that are set up for you to walk around and see amazing birds and wildlife in Illinois. 
I feel like I still have so many questions for you, Michael, but we are also a question and answer show. So we have to get to our, our homeowner questions today. So uh, if you wouldn't mind helping us to answer these questions that have come in from uh, extension offices and social medias. Sure. All right. So uh, let's see, Katie, I think we have you kicking off the questions for this week, please. Yeah. So our first question comes from McDonough County and it comes from a local golf course that just built a new pro shop but now this structure is very suitable for barn swallow habitat. Do you have any advice to discourage nesting where the golfers sit and eat? Yeah. First off, I think golf courses are a great opportunity for bird conservation, right? So I worked on a golf course in Jacksonville and the superintendent there was very interested in birds. And so we were able to, you know, at the same time, provide good golfing experiences, use herbicides and pesticides and, uh, and get birds. I mean, the question about barn swallows and trying to keep them from nesting on the ledges or underneath eaves is tricky. So you can't, the best way is to physically make it so they can't be there. Um, so they sell sticky spikes. So just little plastic spikes that you roll out and stick on They're very, you can't see them very easily, but they make it so if the bird tried to actually build their mud nest, it would be difficult for them. So when you want to manage bird, like problematic birds like geese, we have we do a lot of research with geese. It's all about energy. So you want to make it more energetic, costly for them to do something that you don't want than it is for them to go somewhere else. And the thing, you know, putting up spikes or making like for geese, there's ways to make it so they don't like to fly because it costs a lot of energy. And so that's the way I think about it. So for the barn swallows, I would just go online, buy those spikes, put them up, um, they stick on their old plastic things. I definitely wouldn't, they sell things where they're like ultrasonic sounds or they make sounds like owls. Birds are a lot smarter than people realize and they're not gonna fall for that. Um, we work with crows. Crows are the smartest bird in Illinois by far. And so um, we couldn't hardly catch them. They're just too smart. You have to wear disguises. You can't drive the same car twice because they know the car's coming in. Um, you know, they, you can teach them to talk. I mean, they, and, the, and then we did catch crows. It's only baby crows. So we catch crows that are one year old. You can't catch adults. They're just too smart. And so, um, yeah, people a lot of times, even even geese, think geese are dumb. And yeah, that's until you start doing research on them and realize they're a lot more savvy than you expect. So putting out physical things to keep them from nesting is the way to go. I wouldn't waste money on some of those other approaches. All right, our next question comes from Facebook. Uh, is people food like stale bread and crackers bad for birds? Um, a lot of times people will, will throw those in the backyard and let the birds feed on them. Yeah, um, I mean, there's some some evidence that like, if you catch candy geese that are in parks and being fed bread all the time, they have pretty kind of messed up, right? So it's essentially like us, you know, eating junk food, you know, breakfast, breakfast lunch, and dinner. Um, and well, it's like my kids, right? So I get kids in high school and they were just out there eating and if they had their choice they would eat junk breakfast lunch and dinner right and so I make them not so birds are kind of the thing if you they're going to think that they're going to it's going to the calories are going to light the calories out of some of the of the bread but it's not providing the nutrients they want so it's okay if you have a, I mean I do the same thing if I have some stale crackers and I throw them up in the feeder but you don't want to make it a staple of birds because it's just, they need the nutrients I mean I, I'm a big I use nitrous seed and sunflower seeds in my backyard. And um, you know, the, those seeds don't provide everything they need because certain times of year they need insects as well. But it definitely, especially in winter, provides a lot of what they, what they need to survive. 
We have another question from Facebook. They're asking, we set our feeders far away from the windows, but we still get bird strikes. Is there anything we can do to prevent the birds from hitting our windows? Yeah, so, you know, millions of birds die every year from hitting windows. And so there definitely has things you can do. We have an issue on campus right now where we're dealing with this. So there's a couple things to keep in mind. So birds hit windows either because they see the reflection of vegetation, or in some cases you have a lot of house plants on the other side of the window and they're flying toward that. Or they see through your house, right? So they see through a window to another window and it's light on the other side and they think it's a passage through a forest essentially. And so the way to keep birds from hitting windows is to make sure they can see the window. And so there's a couple things you can do. Birds see in the UV, so they see the world differently than we do. So you can buy UV stickers that we can kind of see, but not really see, but birds really see them. Those work a little bit. I'm a, I'm a, I like to actually, on campus, what we're trying to do is put some strips, just some cloth strips um, from the window and the movement of those and the, um, you don't have to put that many, just enough so they know there's something there that'll stop the, the collisions. Um, what I had a problem in my house when we moved in years ago, and it, I determined that it was because they could see through kind of a breezeway area. So I moved the couch over so they couldn't see through there. And I still get some, now that I'm home, I've determined what causes it too. I still get some collisions. Most of the time it's because the Cooper's Hawk sneaks up on them on the feeder and the Cooper's Hawk has learned to scare them toward my patio and they bounce off the, the window stunned and then the Cooper's Hawk has easy food for them. Um, so, but, um, but there's definitely things you can do. There's lots of online resources, you know, you know, like in Chicago, where there's a huge problem where there was, where like McCormick Place would leave their lights on all night and birds migrating at night would find a McCormick Place and they go around with a wheelbarrow and pick up all the dead birds every morning. Um, luckily, Mayor Daly uh, at the time was the mayor of Chicago and he, he was interested in birds and his wife was interested in birds. And so they asked them to stop and now they get maybe one or two a night. And so there's definitely things we can do to make a difference. And for people in their backyards, um, just putting something on the window so birds learn there's a window there can go a long ways. What would you do about a territorial cardinal that keeps attacking a window? Yeah. They're funny, you know, um, I just said birds are so smart. And then someone will send me a picture of a cardinal smacking its head against a rearview mirror all day long. Um, so I usually, we had a, we have, I've had a problem in my yard about this. I put a, just a paper sack over the, the side windows and then um, usually, well, that'll stop them in the short term, but um, usually it's when their testosterone is building up. So males, so in about, in Illinois, in about a month, cardinals will be getting all pissy, right? So they're, the males are trying to be who the subtlest male is to try to get the females. And so once that passes, you just got to get through that point, right? And so it's usually only a couple week period. And if you can kind of take measures to stop it, then they'll kind of figure it out on their own and it'll be okay. But it can be annoying. I mean, woodpeckers do the same thing when they pick on your house if you have wood siding. And so they're usually not trying to get insects. They're just trying to sound like a big studly woodpecker that's making all this noise. And you, it's hard, right? So you got to put out something to stop them from, you know, some metal flashing in certain areas. But, um, but usually it's a short-term thing that it'll, it'll go away. All right, our next question is from Facebook again. Uh, should we feed birds all year? My feeders are not very busy in the summer. When would be a good time to start and stop if we don't do all year? Right, so as I mentioned earlier, I mean, I, I think that from a population level, it's probably, except for maybe hummingbirds, not making a difference. So 
you could feed all year if you want to. It probably wouldn't make much difference. Um, if you look at your activity at your feeder, this time of year, they're going to be a lot more active because they're a lot more stressed for food. And so if you're doing bird feeding to try to help the individuals in your neighborhood, the individual birds, and to see them, I personally, what I do is I start feeding um, kind of the end of migration, which in Illinois is November, then I'll go through like beginning of March. Um, if you want to go longer, you'll get some other interesting birds showing up like rose-breasted grosbeaks or indigo bunnings, those kind of things. But, um, but you can feed all year round. You're not, you know, people talk about, well, you're causing them to not migrate, which that might be true in some cases, but if they weren't going to migrate, they were going to die anyway. And so, um, you know, one thing that's hard for people to, especially if I go to Audubon Society, is the concept that birds die. That's the way it is, right? So birds produce a lot of offspring. If the offspring all live, then we would be, you know, swimming in birds. And so birds die. It's kind of the way it is. But we've got to think big picture on how we can maintain a population that is either stable or increasing. And um, bird feeding is maybe a small part of that, but it's not the, it's more habitat driven than anything else. And so, I, I mean, I, I think that um, it's up to you. You can feed whatever you want, um, but uh, you get your most bang for your bucks in terms of seeing birds in the uh, um, colder months. Our next question comes from McDonough County and their backyard backs up to a cornfield. They've set out black oil, sunflower seed and niger seed, but all they ever get are little sparrows. What can they do to attract birds like cardinals? Yeah, um, I get people saying that um, sometimes. Uh, there, there are, like Madonna County, I guarantee you, there's lots of cardinals. Um, one thing is cardinals like to have some bushes around. So if you're out in the open area and you don't have any, especially if you're out in a big ag field and you don't have any trees or bushes, um, cardinals don't move around that much or non-migratory. So they might not be there in the summer. And so it might be good to plant some, some trees that'll, or some bushes. Um, that'll bring in the cardinals. Um, the, especially in agricultural areas, you get a lot of house sparrows, um, which you know we don't like, but if you set up multiple feeders and kind of try to just, um, you, you're, you're only gonna have so many house sparrows in the area. And so multiple feeders, you can kind of space them out and they can be aggressive, but I mean, I would suggest adding a couple feeders and um, planting some trees and that way, by doing that, you'll get not only cardinals, but like in McDonough County, you should get blue jays, maybe tough titmice, maybe black-capped chickadees, uh, maybe goldfinches. It's just that a lot of these birds get nervous. They're not, they're not programmed to be in big open areas. And so there's some interesting research on, just like us, right? So if you grew up out in the country and you drop you on the Lakeshore Drive, you get a little antsy, you get a little nervous. Well, the same thing, you drop a bird that's in the forest into the middle of a cornfield, it gets a little nervous, right? And so you got to provide some more structure for it to start taking advantage of your bird feeder. All right, next question is from Cass County. Do we need to provide water in the winter or do birds use snow? So some birds use snow. Um, birds have a very high metabolic rate, which the byproduct of that is they use a lot of water. So if you do put a heating element out for a bird bath in your backyard, you will get a lot of birds um, taking advantage of that. Um, that's also why this time of year, especially like today when it's so cold, if you go by a stream that actually has open water, you'll see lots of birds there because they, they need a certain amount of water to maintain their metabolic activity. Um, I don't know that you providing water is saving any of them per se, 
um, because they've all kind of evolved to deal with cold temperatures. But if you do want to enjoy birds, um, putting out a bird bath with one of those water heaters, I've seen those where it's amazing how many birds take advantage of that over the course of a day. And then our last question for the day comes from Hancock County. And the, this person saw an online instructional video for cleaning bird feeders with apple cider vinegar. Does this work to kill diseases? Um, probably. The, there's a disease that I see, actually, I saw a bird this morning in my feeder with it. <coughs> it's um, it's kind of like a pink eye uh, that house finches and goldfinches get, and your know, eyes swell shut. And they do likely transmit that at thistle feeders. And so cleaning them is a good idea. I probably don't clean mine as much as I should, but you know, for me, if I fill up the feeder, it takes about a month for them to get through the feeder or most times. And so um, maybe every, every other month, I'll try to clean it out a little bit. I, I typically just use Dawn and water and just clean it out. Um, vinegar probably work better. Um, it's really just a problem for um, birds that are called finches, house finches and goldfinches. And it's this disease they get in their eyes. Um, for most other birds, we don't really see um, diseases at feeders causing big problems. But I don't see why apple cider vinegar would, would be a problem. And um, especially if you have lots of goldfinches or house finches, which I know some people do, um, especially in Southern Illinois and uh, kind of Southeastern Illinois, they can get, you can have a feeder with lots of those birds. Uh, it's probably not a bad idea to do that every couple of weeks or I mean, probably every time you fill up the feeder wouldn't be a bad idea. Well, that was a lot of excellent information. Uh, Dr. Michael Ward, uh, ornithologist with the Illinois Natural History Survey and assistant professor at U of I. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. You know, it's, uh, it's fun to me to talk about birds. And, um, you know, if anybody that's, uh, that's listening or taking part in the show is, you know, feel free to email me. And uh, if you got bird questions, I'm happy to answer those. And uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, my hope is that people uh, appreciate the birds in Illinois. We have a lot of them out there and that uh, in a lot of places in Illinois, there's certain things you can do in your backyard to help with those populations out. And so um, you know, again, every little thing helps. And so um, feel free to email me if you have any questions. Excellent. We will include your email in our show notes below. And I highly encourage uh, people to uh, hey, share the podcast, subscribe, like us, and check out, do a little Google search for Dr. Michael Ward. He's got some good webinars that are online if you want more information about doing this in the, in the backyard. So um, the Good Growing Podcast is produced by Wendy Ferguson and edited by me, Chris Enroth. A special thanks goes to Katie Parker, Ken Johnson for being our intrepid co-host every single week. Thank you very much. It's not a problem. I'm excited to check out eBird. It sounds like a really cool place to visit. Thank you, Chris, Katie, and Michael. And Chris, Katie, let's do this again next week. Oh, we shall do this again next week. We're going to be talking with Chris Evans about trees, maple trees specifically, and maple syrup. So looking forward to that. I will get the griddle fired up for next week's show. As always, listeners, thanks you for what you do, for doing what you do best, and that is listening if I could talk, or if you're watching this on YouTube, watching, and as always, keep on growing.